2: Joel, welcome back. Hey, glad to be back. We had so much fun the first time and so much response from our listeners. Definitely, yeah. yeah.
0: A lot of good feedback.
2: Well, there's a lot of money questions out there, that's for (laughs) sure. So (laughs) I think we need to tackle some more, right?
0: Absolutely.
2: So many more listener questions. I think we should probably just get right into it like kind of quick. So let's just jump into some questions and just see how it goes from there. Perfect, let's do it.
0: Well, I just wanted to after the last one, after the last episode, one thing that I was thinking about that I sort of wanted to go over again because we were talking about how Adam and I have just started to sort of come together and collaborate about finances and everything. And we were talking a little bit about how to as a couple come together. And you were saying how, you know, you come together in synergy to try to do all ultimately what it is the same goal for each of you, right? You're both trying to save for your kids and your retirement. And so ultimately you want to be in a good place together to do that. And I just sort of wanted to say from my own perspective that I think that as a stay-at-home mom and everything, um, or for part-time working people out there, that the conversation, even in listening to these episodes, if you listen to these episodes together with your spouse or your partner, I think that the main takeaway in all of this is to sit down as a partnership and talk about it. And I think that's one thing that a lot a lot of feedback that I've gotten, um, especially as someone who admitted myself that I knew nothing, was that a lot of the reason why I knew nothing was that I was just scared to even talk about it because I sounded stupid, like you were saying in the last episode. We sound like we don't know what we're talking about because we were never taught and had maybe, not that I'm blaming Adam, but had he maybe gently sat down with me and made me feel like a partner and we had gone over it together and he had really taken the time patiently to show me, then maybe 10, 15 years ago, I would have started this rather than now. So I just think that it, in all of this, sit down together and talk about it because I do think it's, it's worthwhile and you need to be, I think the, the tone of the conversation is going to mean a lot how it's approached because it's such a sensitive subject.
1: I completely agree. And I, I think I hear from people all the time who are beating themselves up because they started saving for retirement later than they, than they should have, later than they think they should have. And that can be people in their 30s or that can be people in their late 40s, early 50s that just haven't started yet. And they all think, oh, I'm too late. I've started too late. And I've really screwed up, haven't I? And the answer is no. I mean, there's always a chance and a time to start. And and the best time to start is now. And there's like a Chinese proverb that says that uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, but the second best time is right now. And so whether you've had uh, trouble getting started saving for retirement on your own, or whether you have kind of been left out of the family finances. Um, it's, it's not the best approach is not to say, Hey, partner, it's all your fault. Or, Hey, um, now I'm, the best answer is to say, now I'm ready to get involved and now we've got to make this work. And, uh, I think it's really easy to be passive aggressive, um, in a, a situation like that or, or to feel like our partners let us down and there's a way to engage each other gently, like you said, in, in the, in this conversation. And it's, uh, and it's and honestly, in, in marriage, it's pretty much always uh, the fault of both partners to a certain extent, a little bit, right? I mean, I think we could admit that we're a partnership. And so, um, yeah, I think it's important to to say, you know what? Now I'm stepping in and I'm gonna I'm gonna um, be a part of this where I wasn't before.
0: And I think a really good start is to even just listen to these finance episodes together. It opens up the dialogue and the conversation. So which I think is the first step. And I'm hoping that that's what we're doing is that, you know, partnerships, marriages who haven't been talking about it will
2: now start to.
1: It brings uh, the question up. That's for sure. Agreed. Yeah.
2: All right. This is a perfect transition into one of the questions we have here. There are no particular order or anything, so we can just jump around. But based upon what you guys were just kind of talking about, one of the questions was, what do I do if I'm in my late 30s and haven't started retirement savings yet?
1: Yeah, it's definitely not too late. And yes, you can totally start now. And like I was just saying, I mean, I think, it is easy to, to beat yourself up for what you haven't done. And, and you have to begin slowly uh, and, and, and actually get started. And if you can, if you realize that you've got enough wiggle room in your finances to, to actually you know, step it up and start contributing 10% and then make it a goal to, to get up to uh, you know, a, a couple percentage points, maybe uh, up your contribution every six months, um, then you can start to catch up for the, those retirement savings that you've missed. And so, yeah, I think it's just really easy to say, you know what? I've failed up until this point. So, you know what? What's the point in starting? And that is just a bad place to be in. So I would say, yeah, if you're in your 30s, you know what? You're actually still way ahead of the curve compared to most people because most people don't start thinking about retirement investing until they're their mid-40s. And so if you're in your 30s, yeah, wow. you're still ahead of the game compared to most folks.
2: So the normal age is in mid-40s to get started retirement planning?
1: That's when most people start to think about it. It's kind of one of these things that they're like, wait, I'm I'm starting to get older. And wait, I haven't even started saving in my 401k or I, what's an IRA? And that, those questions start to kind of get brought up for a lot of people, uh, yeah, in, in their 40s. Uh, and so um, it, there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who just cruise through and retirement's not even, you know, something on their mind at all.
0: Wow. I guess also one of the things was, going back to what we were talking about, what, what do you do if, there, if you have a, a spouse who doesn't help manage money? Should both people always be involved? Or is it, is it the type of thing where if someone is feeling like the other person is doing a fine job and everything, just let it go?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I feel like it, obviously the, the dynamics in any relationship are going to be different. And I, I mentioned on the last episode that my wife and I, like I need her kind of spreadsheet skills and I need some of her organizational talents. Um, and for me, we would just not be nearly as effective at managing our money if it wasn't for, for the good work that she does in partnership with me. But but I realize too that every relationship is going to be different. Maybe it's kind of more 80-20. Uh, maybe it's more 90-10 even. And I think that's okay. I think the the point is, the really important thing is that each partner does attempt to at least get into the conversation surrounding money a little bit because... These are your goals together as a couple. And if you aren't inserted, at least in some of that part of the budgeting and planning, then there's a good chance that, that the things that you care about are getting left off the table when it comes to the money discussions. And there's also a good chance that, especially, um, Danielle, like you were saying with, with someone being a stay-at-home partner, that you're getting left off the table when it comes to where the retirement funds get apportioned. And I think it's really important you to step up and advocate for you to have retirement accounts in your name for an IRA in the name of the the stay-at-home spouse uh, to have money in that in in, in his or her name. Um, so yeah, I think it is important to be somewhat involved, but I don't think it has to be this 50-50 split uh, because that's not the way any of the rest of our marriage is either, right? We each kind of carry our own load. Someone takes out the trash and someone else unloads the dishwasher and and we've kind of got our tasks. And so I think it's okay, but it is important that Uh, the spouse that is less involved, still be involved, I think at least to some extent.
0: I think also it's another thing that's important that we, I think, forget to talk about is the fact that God forbid something happened to your spouse and you have no clue what's going on. Well, then, I mean, you don't want to even think about that, but sometimes you kind of have to because you need to at least know the basics of where your money is and how to access it. And, you know, is it in my name? And what, what, whatever the questions are that you need to have answered, if God forbid you're in that situation.
1: Oh, completely. Yeah. I think it's really important for the spouse that is the most in charge of money it's really important for the the spouse that is more in control of the finances to have something written down for for the other partner um, and tell them where it is where it is tell them where the what are the accounts who do i need to call in the case of something happening do is is it with fidelity is it with vanguard or like where where where's the money what bank accounts do we have and to have a safe safe place where you keep those records so that the other spouse, in case something happens, that they are prepared and that they know at least where to go. And it's really important too that uh, that we have our beneficiaries updated uh, on, you know, with the with our banks, with our brokerage accounts. So that that's that's one big thing that, that people forget to do. Have you gotten divorced and remarried? Uh, do you, is your are your beneficiaries uh, designated the way you want them to be? And also, do you have a will? And the great thing is wills are incredibly easy to do oftentimes. There's a website called freewill.com and I use that to do my will and it's just completely free. And the great thing is you don't have to go to a lawyer necessarily. Like If you have a more complex situation, a lot of legal experts will say, yes, you need to, you need to sit down with a, with a real lawyer. Uh, but for most of us who don't have the time and aren't going to do that, at least taking the initial step of going to a site like Freewill and having a will created. Uh, it is is just a really important thing to do as well.
2: Even sites like Fidelity, which again, just one that we use. They don't, we have nothing to do with them. His uh, last episode, Joel, we got a lot of responses asking us, hey, does Fidelity sponsor you guys? Because that's all I talked about, because that's just who we <laughs> use and that's what I know. Yeah. So I use them as an the example every time. But there's plenty of places out there where like Fidelity, they have something called FullView view that you can input all of your accounts outside of Fidelity as well and have one area, one login, and everything is there. So if God forbid something happens to one of us, it's one login to see every account, how to get there, what the contact is, how much is in there, even things like life insurance companies, auto insurance companies, everything can be input into this thing called FullView. So you have one login to see everything. And that's really important. God forbid something should happen. Yeah, that's
1: amazing. I agree. Completely. Very, very important. And I love that Yeah, Fidelity is making it easy for for their users, for sure.
2: Okay, moving on. Let's uh, skip down to a question about kids. I think you actually just did an episode about this, about what's a good age to get kids started with savings? How do you teach them how to start saving? Should you open a, a savings account for them? This is a very broad question. How do you get started with teaching your kids how to save?
1: Sure. Yeah, I think the most important thing is to start young. If you have young kids still, then you can get started. I think as early as as two, honestly, and and probably probably closer to three is when you're actually going to be able to have even any impact, really. Um, but you know, my girls are five and three, and we talk about money a, f- a fair amount. Um, and the other most the and we're teaching them just kind of small things, just kind of trying to understand how money works to a certain extent. The fact that you know what, we work uh, in order to get money because that's how it works out in the real world, right? You work, you get money, and then you have money that you can spend on things. We're trying to help our girls at five and three already understand the idea of saving a little bit more to be able to purchase something that, that you wanted, uh, even though like you couldn't afford it based on you know, the work that you did in the family this week. But if you work for two more weeks, guess what? You can afford that jump rope that you want. And so we're already starting young with that. I think the biggest thing though, it, for parents to remember is that your kids are going to emulate your actions, uh, far more than they're going to emulate your words. And so it's mm-hmm. more important to handle money well, to talk about it well with your spouse in front of your kids, uh, and than to lecture them you know, about how money works. And so, yeah, I just, I think I would stress that, um, always teach by modeling and just remember that kids pick up more than you think. That's for sure.
2: Are savings accounts getting a little outdated at this point? Are there apps to put money in that if they do chores, deposit something that they can use for whatever they want?
0: I think they even have like kids-specific debit cards now and stuff, right? Where you can just get a debit card that's specifically for your kids. I don't know exactly how it works, but I know I've seen that.
1: Yeah, they totally do. So there's one called Greenlight Card. And Greenlight's pretty cool. Uh, I, it really helps parents to be able to to control where kids spend, and it also gives them the ability to to incentivize their kids to save. So you can say, you know what, for every uh, for every you know dollar that you have in your savings account, we're going to pay an interest rate far above what a normal bank would pay, and that incentivizes your kid to to keep money in their savings account as opposed to spending it. So you can go check that out at GreenlightCard.com. And I believe it's $5 a month uh, or, or 60 bucks a year. And you can use that for as many kids as you have in your family. And I think, especially with the way things are changing in our society, and uh, we are using plastic a whole lot more, uh, it's helpful to have kids know how to use dollar bills, actual physical cash. But it's becoming more and more important to teach your kid how to use a card and how to use it well. And so I think it is personally, I, I like something like Greenlight. And I think That can be a a huge benefit to helping your kids learn at an early age how to handle money well.
0: Actually, I have a question um, that I often think about myself. So right now, I have all these. So I'm a huge Starbucks buff. I go to Starbucks all the time. I'm obsessed. I know people are with Dunkin' Donuts or whatever your brand of coffee is or whatever. And now they have these apps that you can pay off, right? And it makes it so it really feels like you're not spending any money whatsoever. I mean, I refill that thing. Like you just put your little finger on the touchpad and you fill it. And is there something to be said for not using those and using actual cash so that you can kind of get a sense of, uh, are we losing too much in doing all of that? Just press your touch screen and you're spending money. And is that getting, is that getting us, completely removed from the idea of keeping track of how much you're spending because there is something to be said about doing something on your phone. It's so easy, right? Yes, it's not even, I, it used to be that you would re- even refill a Starbucks card and give them the Starbucks card. Now it's not even that. Now you just do it straight off your phone. And I always feel like I, I have no clue at this point how much I refill it.
1: Yeah. I think frictionless payment is one of those things that is something that can easily uh, erode your finances over time. Like Amazon Prime, Amazon One Click to Purchase is one of those things that does kind of the exact same thing. And I think that's definitely something that people can do in order to, to hone in on their shopping habit or their quick purchasing habit. It, it might be worth even if you use Amazon a lot, you know, that could be the problem. You might need to cancel your Prime membership. Any way that you can find uh, a way to institute uh, a way that makes buying stuff uh, create a little more friction, just a little more difficulty in your life, you'll, you'll in all likelihood find yourself buying fewer items. Um, and so a lot of people have, uh, that I know have instituted something like a, a four-day ban or a seven-day ban. If you put something in your Amazon cart, you say, okay, you know what? If I need it four days from now or seven days from now, then I can buy it if I still feel like I need it.
2: And the, the problem is- That's you- really smart. That's, I never thought of that. That's a great idea.
1: Yeah, so like usually we just pop it in and we head over to checkout and and boom, or we literally do the one click thing. And we end up, I, I don't know if you've ever done this, Adam, but I've totally done this. I have bought something and then forgotten what I ordered. And it feels like Christmas morning when I get the box on my front porch. And I'm like, oh, oh, this this is what I, oh, cool. Yeah, I'm excited to use this now. They
0: call that drunken prime. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't even think
2: I was drunk doing it. I just think I have a bad memory. but No, no,
0: half the shit in our house is for drunken prime.
2: <laughs> yeah, we could literally build Christmas trees out of the boxes once a week right. from <laughs> the amount of boxes yeah. that come to our door that we don't even know about. And when you think about
1: all those things, right, like a lot of those things are probably in some corner of your house. You don't even remember what you bought four months ago. I mean, sometimes I forget, right, like what I bought two days ago. Uh, and, and so, any way that you can prevent those purchases on the front end and funnel that money into a vacation fund, something that is going to be more meaningful, take a look and see what you spent on something like Amazon or Starbucks or anything like that in the past six months. Just, just go into Mint or whatever app you're using to track your progress. And see what you spent and and see if it's meaningful. And if it is, wow, was it was it worth it to me? Did it move the needle? And if it didn't resonate with you in uh, and, and you're just doing it mindlessly, these are kind of habits that we can change. It just takes a little bit of intentionality. Um, and then I think there's so many more positive things that we can do with that money than buying stuff that we randomly clutters up our house and we forget it even exists.
2: Yeah, totally. We are very good examples of that. So we we know exactly what you're talking about. What are your thoughts on, because Starbucks is one of these things that I have here as an example, what are your thoughts on your the everyday things we do to treat ourselves, like a Starbucks or ordering in or just those little things every day that add up? Now, there's two situations that there can be here. One is you're in a financial bind and obviously you shouldn't do that. There's always those people out there that say, "Well, if you don't have a Starbucks once a week and you save that, by the time you're 60, that's a million dollars, you know, whatever the stupid number is." Is it okay to treat yourself today and not have that money in the future growing to whatever it would become?
1: Oh yeah, I think it's definitely okay to treat yourself, and I think it's it's necessary at times. Good, to leave do it that. at that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Let me expand just quickly. So, like, no, on- no, I'm just
2: kidding. Take your time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on our show. We, we drink a beer every episode, like a really good beer. And you guys you know, have an awesome beverage every time y'all do a podcast too. And so for us, it is it is a way of saying this is one of those few things that we have highly prioritized in our lives. And everyone's got that, right? Everyone's got something. The problem is you can't afford everything. And you can't afford to do, in all likelihood, Starbucks five days a week. And even if you do, then it's not so much of a treat, it's a habit. And I think if you can find a way to, to change something like that that becomes just something you do by rote and find a way to to maybe do it less often, it can feel like a complete reward if if you just change kind of the cycle at which you partake in that item, whether it 's starbucks or uh, or a or craft beer um, so I, yeah, I think any way that you can find it if it becomes a habit, then you're going to want to find a way to change that so that it can be more of a reward based on good
2: behavior, good saving,
1: as opposed to something that you just do every day. And it's just a money bleed.
2: Now, I completely agree because look, we all deserve to feel good today and not have to worry about, are we going to have a Starbucks when we're 70? So
0: <laughs> spoken from the man who, when he says that um, on a night or a day when you're hungover, you're just borrowing a little bit of happiness from, yes. No, no, no. The night when you're drunk, you're borrowing happiness from the next day. Yes. So you need to remember <laughs> the next day when you're hungover that you borrowed that happiness yes. the
2: night before. Right. So you're just right. borrowing some right. happiness exactly. from the next day. Tomorrow you'll feel like shit, but today I feel really good. Right. It's right. <laughs> right. <Yeah, you're, laughs> yeah, pretty accurate. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I take claim for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I have plenty of those. <laughs>
0: Another thing that I want to talk about when it comes to kids, and I realize we're jumping around here, but when it comes to kids right now, there's this, and your kids are, you said three and five. So I don't know if you're in this yet or not. At our age, our kids are 13, 10, and seven. And there's this whole thing now with overscheduling your kids. We're paying a fortune on activities. I mean, there are kids out there who are in something every day because as parents, we feel such guilt telling our kids if every other kid is doing it. We feel such guilt, and there's and there's something to be said for. I know when I was growing up, we were allowed to pick one activity, and the rest, you know, was just, that was it. You prioritized, you pick one activity, and that's that's what you did. And now there's this whole. I mean, kids are doing in the same season. They're doing soccer and baseball and tennis and art classes, and there's so much of that now.
2: And these activities are expensive. They're very expensive. So it's not just about mm-hmm. are you overscheduling the
0: uniforms and the You're overspending. You know, the the rehearsals and the you know, you pay for um competitions, dance competitions, all this stuff. Any any thought about limiting that? And and what is, you know, because I think that there are times when in a month we're paying over $1,000 a month sometimes in activities. And I think there are people who are paying more than that. And I think we have so much trouble saying no because there's so much guilt associated with that because you see all the other kids doing it and all the other parents are able to do that for their kids. So at what point do we say it's enough?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think guilt is a huge reason why we do that as parents. Um, but I think there are yeah, ways to, to rein it in and to create boundaries. Just like I mean, when I was growing up, my parents set a limit on the amount they would spend on my shoes. And if I wanted one of those super cool, fancy Scotty Pippen or Michael Jordan pairs of shoes, I had to save up some of my own money to to put towards it. And usually, I mean, they would pay a third of the cost of something that of an expensive shoe like that. So I had to save up for a good long while in order, in order to get that. I think it's a, a good lesson for your kids to learn that money doesn't grow on trees and that they have to, you know, if they want to take another sport, is there a way that you can incentivize them to do more around the house to, you know, to do some actual, to do some work. And also I think it's really important when you're talking to your kids about money and work around the house to divide it between chores and work uh, because chores are something they do because they're a part of the family. And then work is something that they do that's extra that they can get paid for. Um, But yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, One thing that we do. So my daughter, who's five, we get together as families during the, the spring and summer, and we head to our local park. and We kick the soccer ball around, and a couple of the dads maybe teach a, fi- a couple of the little moves. Granted, that's only going to work if your kids are younger like that. You're, you're like 13, 14-year-old kids are going to want to be in something a little more structured. But any way that you can do that, especially while they're young, just save some, save some money. I mean, when I was a kid, we'd also, we would also play football or baseball or basketball in the front yard until, uh, until it was dark and we had to run inside. Um, so I think you're not depriving your kids, just find other ways, uh, to get them active, um, and, and off the couch and incentivize them to do that. And maybe incentivize them too. If we save this much money by doing this, guess what? We'll be able to, um, to do this fun splurge as a family. There's ways to kind of incorporate your kids into that.
0: And as a follow-up question to that, do you have any, because I'm not the most organized person and I often say to my kids, oh yeah, you, you could do chores, you could this, or you could that. And after a couple days, I forget about it. It's done. I end up getting them what they wanted anyway. It's, just it's because.
2: true. I'm just going to vouch for what she's saying. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Because no, you're right. So I uh, let you. Thank know when you. You're right. right.
0: So uh, it, do you have any kind of system that you think works? Is, is there an app that you recommend or are that, you know, is there any type of system that because, listen, chore charts are great in theory, uh, I don't find that they work. Um, especially if you have a really busy household with multiple kids and you know, just, it just gets away from you. So if you have any kind of tips for that, please.
1: You know, my kids are pretty young. So we haven't really, we're teaching suit, like the basics. And it's really more like you need to pick up your shoes and your, your clothes need to go in the dirty clothes. Um, and you know what? I don't know. Some kids at 13 or 14 still don't know those things. <laughs> so um, that's definitely a problem. Um, yeah, I think organizationally, that's, Completely something that is up to up to the parent um, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to handle that when when our kids are ready for kind of more advanced chores versus work kind of stuff, um, but I do think that it is important that each kid have some set chores, and I knew when I was growing up right that I took out the trash every time it was full, and my mom sometimes had to nag me that's for sure um, but but I knew after a while like boom she's not going to let me off the hook she's not going to do it for me I think. It's really easy for parents to to actually just to do it because it's quicker that way um, that they say, you know what, I'm going to do it because Johnny just isn't going to do it. And, and it's easier. Um, and I think that's one of the, the tough parts. But as a parent, you kind of have to enter into that battle and
2: and you and that's the only way they're going to learn. Right. Somebody asked about having a rainy day fund. And I had a question too, which I think kind of relays and it. it could be the same thing, where another person says, "What's an emergency fund, and what's sufficient for an emergency fund? Is rainy day funded emergency fund kind of the same thing, but I guess all in one, what are they, and what's sufficient to have in that fund
1: yeah they're they're just really different ways of labeling the same thing okay. you can call it you can call it either thing um, but yeah, I think uh, just think about it like this: If you have, if you save twenty-five dollars a week, by the end of two years, you'll have twenty-six hundred dollars in your emergency fund. And I think that's just helpful to realize that twenty-five dollars a week probably isn't a huge lift, uh, and that after oh, after just a year, you'll be over a thousand dollars. That's which is which is which is awesome. Um, and and that's the recommended uh, beginning start for an emergency fund. Once you have thousand dollars, you can pretty much meet most emergency expenses that come up. And I think too, it's important to point out when it comes to emergency funds, that there are, that (laughs) what we consider an emergency uh, could differ by person. Well, like
2: if you haven't had a Starbucks in a month and you're like, (laughs) I need one. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's not a good emergency. Um,
2: (laughs) And in the same way,
1: tires for your car is not a good emergency. Um, That's something that you should be budgeting. Anything that you know that you're going to need to pay deferred maintenance, uh, you know that that's something that you need to put into your budget. And an emergency fund really is for is for true emergencies. Let's say job loss, um, you know, unforeseen water damage in your house, uh, a car fender bender, um, where where you uh, want to avoid uh, going after going on insurance, or even if you have to go on insurance uh, and and have insurance going to pay for the damage, you have to pay your deductible. That could be, you know, come out of your emergency fund.
2: So I guess uh, but, it's more for the unexpected. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I think people sometimes treat it like, cool. Well, I, yeah, I needed new tires or I totally forgot that my car insurance was due this month and they use their emergency fund for that. It's really important to to silo your emergency fund and it actually might be most helpful if you start, you know, funneling 25 50 $75 a week now into a
2: separate savings account just so that you're not tempted to touch it. Let's talk real quick about just investing. If you're beginning to invest, how do you do it safely? How do you get started investing without it, I guess, feeling like you're gambling or you're doing it responsibly, let's say it that way?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, honestly, one of the main reasons that people avoid investing is because they think that it is gambling. They think it's similar to Vegas and throwing your money down the craps table or betting it on red and roulette, whatever. Uh, but in actuality, the biggest, the biggest risk that is posed to your finances is, is not investing. Uh, and that's because of inflation. And the average rate of inflation is somewhere roughly about 3%. And most people have, like we talked about how, uh, on the, the last show that we did, have their money in one of the major banks that's paying 0.01%. And so your money, your buying power is slowly eroding over time because of inflation. Uh, and so the only way to combat that is to invest your money. And so it's actually much more—it's much safer over the long haul to invest than to not invest. And so how do you actually invest safely then? Well, the key is to invest as much as you can in tax-advantaged retirement accounts and invest that money into low-cost, uh, highly diversified index funds. And so low cost is means that you're not going to be paying high fees your money's going to be working for you. And then widely diversified means that your, your investment dollars are not uh, going whole hog in on Netflix. And then who knows what the next Netflix disruptor is, but it's going to come along at some point. Or your money isn't you know, 50% in Tesla stock and 50% in Amazon because you never know what's going to happen. What next electric car company or e-commerce site is going to completely derail their business model. So instead of doing something like that and buying single stocks, uh, I suggest I- investing in something like a total stock market fund, which invests in thousands of uh, U.S. companies that are not just that are based in the U.S. but also doing business worldwide. And I think that gives you a really good exposure. Um, and at the same time, uh, those those index funds are low cost. We're talking uh, like 0.03, 0.04 percent, mm-hmm. and in some cases, free. Um, so uh, I think, yeah, it's really important to to be invested and to realize that not investing is actually a bigger risk than investing. And just one little caveat is that we're talking about an extended time frame. Because if you invest your money in the total stock market today, and you think you're going to take it out uh, three months from now, well, there's a good chance you're going to have less money than when you started. Uh, But if we're talking about investing uh, on a long time horizon, if we're talking about 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, uh, then, then we're saying it's an incredibly safe bet. And it's so much better than having your money just under your mattress at home.
2: My two cents to add to that is, if it's for the long term, 10, 20, 30 years retirement, have somebody help you pick out whatever you're investing into, have it set up automatically invested out of your checking account, and don't look back. Don't look at it. Don't look at it every day, every week, because it's just going to freak you out because the the market is volatile. It goes up and it goes down. And you're going to think you're losing money, but in 10 years, most likely you won't be. So, um, completely, yes. Don't look at it.
1: If you're one of those people that is always tempted to yeah. give the password to your spouse. I have a friend who even said he gave his, his password to his emergency fund account, to that bank account, to his friend, uh, <laughs> to someone that he was really close to. And I'm like, well, that's like you know, potential for them taking your money. You got to trust them <laughs> really that's well. A, right? That's <laughs> a good friend. That's a good friend. But if you're tempted to look, don't make sure you're not getting paper statements in the mail. Forget your password and have it set up on auto draft for your account. There's, there's you. you want to make it hard, just like you want to make it hard. Uh, you want to introduce friction into the shopping process when you're buying on Amazon or refilling your Starbucks card. You want to introduce some friction into actually looking at those uh, online retirement account statements because if it's going to tempt you to to make a change, to to buy a sell, uh, to to stop investing then you're going to want to make sure that you stay away from it. Because like I said, we're talking about this 10, 20, 30 years. It doesn't matter what happened last month. It doesn't matter what happens four months from now. What matters is, is the way your, your retirement account is ultimately going to look after decades.
2: And lastly on that, I think if anybody ever tries to give you advice about this and they ever use any of these three words, if they say options, calls, or puts, punch them in the face and run the other way because <laughs> that's gambling. We don't need to go any further with that because I know those are kind of techie nerdy words for investing.
0: Well, you mentioned in the last episode about how you and your wife both put some money aside for the two, like for each of you, right? And I don't know if you guys do it like where you know how much, I would assume you know how much the other person is. So when you talk about that, what what is a good number for that for people who each want, I think it's a great idea. I love the idea of, each of you having your own money just to spend without the other person having any say in what it is, obviously, as long as it's within the means of, of the money. But how do, you, how do you come up with a number for that? How do couples come up with a number with the, from that? And are they in separate bank accounts from the joint bank account? Is it something that you both have a separate place that you keep it, or it's the same place and you're drawing from that same place? each month or however often it is. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Because I do think it's a great idea.
1: Sure. Yeah. I think every couple really handles money differently. And so, for my wife and I, we we got together earlier on in life, I think, than is normal now. I don't know. We got married at 26. And and a lot of people... Oh,
0: we beat
1: you. Yeah. I'm sure you guys did. We were
0: were married at 24.
1: There we go. All right. So, did you combine your money when, when you got married?
0: All four dollars
1: <laughs> so yeah but I think with people uh, waiting longer and longer to get married the thing is that uh, the, the the impetus the decision to to combine finances is just one that people are making less and less they're deciding to keep their finances separate because you know what they've been used to living on their own they've been used to paying their own way they've been used to their own income and own spending and blah 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 so I think if that's the case then it's okay to keep things separate if you are a couple that uh, that does merge things and and in particular if if one of the spouses stays at home, uh, then I think you need to come up with a number that feels fair for both of you. So for my wife, and, and it I, should it was, be
0: the same number. I'm sorry, just to clarify
1: That's what I was just about to say. My okay. wife and I have the same exact amount yes. and and that is that is really important because when we had to think through it, I was like, well, how much do I want to spend for myself? And, and because I had to think about you know what that would look like for me every month and how much I was able to spend, I mean, obviously I wanna look out for her as well. Um, but I think, yeah, having the same number in mind for for each spouse is really important because it's really easy to be like, all right, I'm gonna get like 400 bucks a month and you're gonna get like 25. Um, that's that's <laughs> certainly not very not gonna be good for your relationship over
2: time.
0: <laughs> and I know that some people keep separate accounts altogether, but if you're not the people, if you're the couple who has the same account and you're drawing from the same accounts, is it still, you know, should you each have a separate debit card so that maybe if you want to accumulate that money, like you were saying, you know, save it for three, four months or whatever, does it make more sense to have like separate personal checking accounts just for that money or what, what, what do you recommend and how much, like what percentage?
1: I mean, I think it's a good question. I think uh, as long as you're like, so we budget, for instance, we look at everything in Mint and then we kind of transfer it over to Excel. And we're able to to kind of see all of our recurring monthly expenses there. And if I want to save up, let's say, so for my wife and I, I'll just, we say we have 50 bucks each a month of fun money, however we want to spend it. Uh, but we still have, everybody does it a little differently. So we have a grocery budget, we have an entertainment budget, and the entertainment budget is eating out, right? And so it depends. Some people put their, their eating out money into their grocery money. And so it just all depends how your specific budget is laid out. Um, but if I, let's say, wanted to, I bought some $60 headphones uh, like a month ago. And so that's 10 bucks more than I had. So I know the next month I've got 40 bucks to spend. Or if I'm saving up for something that is going to just a, a bigger ticket item, then you know, I just, I have to, to scrimp and not spend nearly as much for myself, you know, probably means a few less craft beers. Uh, but <laughs> whatever it is, I've got to, I've got to just kind of be a little more diligent about saving you know, my portion of that money and just I document it in the Excel spreadsheet that it's rolling over that, you know what, I only spent $20 of my $50. And I've got 80 bucks the next month. And then it'll keep rolling over until you know, I have that bigger purchase I want to make I don't think there's any reason to get separate accounts or cards. I think you could do it that way. It sounds like it would complicate things a little bit more as long as you're kind of keeping track of things um, and, and tracking, uh, then I think you're okay.
0: I just worry about it being another fight, like, oh, you spend more this month, and you know, having to check up on each other, and yeah, you, you never know because it could get complicated.
1: Yeah, no doubt, it totally can. So I think, yeah, yeah tracking it and making sure that, that that money rolls over, and that you know, as as a couple, like, hey, guess what? You even talk about it. I tell I tell my wife, hey, I'm saving up for this, so that's why I'm spending. You'll see me spending less for a few months, and and she kind of knows, so it's it's on her radar too.
2: Everything that you were saying sounds very complicated. Where you have your app. We track our expenses in in this app called Zeta, and then you were talking about exporting that out into an Excel spreadsheet. And it, it just sounds overly complicated. Is it, or is it easier than it sounds? And is it less yeah, let's time talk about consuming? Budgeting. Uh, yeah.
0: And and give us some cat. Like if I if, we're, if Adam and I we still have yet to sit down and really budget. Right. We 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 we've been using the app, and that's helped really helpful, but. Give us some categories, like you said, entertainment, um, stuff we wouldn't think of and, and what, should, what should we be budgeting for? What are we forgetting about and we're letting go that's costing us money that we need to remember to include in our budget that we probably aren't right now?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, it's important, like we were talking about a little bit earlier, to, to think about upcoming major costs every year. If you're going to need tires, you're going to need to pay for insurance. Don't let that blindside you and not have that in the budget because you know it's coming. Uh, you just tires are probably what every every other year you, you're going to purchase some new tires. Uh, insurance, you know, we pay ours every uh, every six months, and so we have that factored in. Um, going through our budget right here, let's see. We even have beach vacation savings. We're saving 150 bucks a month uh, so that we can have 1,800 to go uh, to the beach this year and to get a house. Right, that's going to be food. That's going to be gas. It's going to be everything. We've got gas factored in. We've got car insurance factored in we've got car taxes factored in at 25 bucks a month so that when we get that annual tax bill uh, that we're gonna be able to pay it we have child care we have Christmas because uh, Christmas presents right like that's not something that is should catch you by surprise either we have my wife's money entertainment which is eating out our date nights gas giving uh, money for our kids and like their clothes and and whatever we're gonna spend on them um, house projects, so saving up even, we're, we're planning on putting a shed in our backyard soon. And so it's this house projects line item that we have budgeted monthly. And we're about to spend pretty soon our pretty much our whole year budget just building that shed. And so that's going to be our main home project uh, for the year. And we're, we're not going to really have any money left over to do anything else. Uh, medical bills, life insurance, uh, memberships even, Netflix. We have all of these things laid out. Uh, phone bills, how much we contribute to our Roth, and how much we uh, put into just general savings. So um, hopefully that's a good overview of utilities of just kind of a bunch of things that should be in your budget. Uh, and each family is going to be different and have a little bit something else. And the great thing too about seeing that laid out is I can see, wait, what seems out of whack here? And what do I think I could change and cut back on? So let's say my internet bill was $100 a month. And that gives me the awesome opportunity to see if I can get that lower to 30 so that I can inflate that beach trip savings which is what I really want to I want to blow that out of the water so you know I think seeing it all laid out in front of you can be so helpful uh, especially to get couples on the same page
0: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time
2: Is your wife as much of a money nerd as you are? Like, is she no. into all this? So how does <laughs> no. she, do, so she handle, like, what you just went through is, like, intense budgeting.
0: He's like, how can I train my wife
2: to be like yours? <laughs> how yeah. does she handle? First like-
0: of all, she's not Jewish.
2: <laughs> all right, you know what? Point taken, episode over. <laughs> all right, how, so- d- h- how does she handle all of this?
1: So we realized early on... So when I was single, I didn't have to have a budget because I was just so frugal, so good at... I would rather put my money into, into my 401k. I'd rather save money to buy an investment property. Uh, or even you know back then, I was just saving to buy my first home. Um, and we quickly realized though, that once we got married, that we were having money fights. And it was because our expectations were different. Uh, my wife expected that the things that she used to spend money on were completely fine for her to continue to spend money on. And I was of the mind that you know our increased dual income house was going to be saving and investing more than we previously were. And so we had to create this budget so that we could be on the same page. And I think sometimes that the biggest money fights in couples come from just not knowing uh, what the current status of the money and and just not being on the same page, and so I think a budget for us was incredibly helpful, just to make sure. And we don't really spend that much time on it. Once you get this figured out, it might take you four hours on a Saturday to kind of lay all this out, to track your expenses in whatever app you're using, and then kind of um, put that into a spreadsheet. But then once now we spend roughly, uh, I think my wife she she really updates this, and she spends probably forty five minutes an hour a month, and then we talk about it for for 20 or 30 minutes. Um, so really it's not a heavy lift and mm-hmm. considering you know <laughs> finances are are such a major issue think about how much time you spend spend fighting about money and instead <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> try to put that into doing something productive about, about <laughs> your money.
2: Well,
0: and I also think that if you're if you have a budget and you're doing it together and everything, I think the biggest thing is that a lot of times it, what we end up doing is we only talk about money in from the negative aspect, right? Like we only talk about it when one of us is spending too much or when you have a disagreement, if, if, if there's a constant communication that it's not going to just be like, I think that with us, it was like anytime he thought I was spending too much money, it would be an argument. But that's the only time I would ever hear about money. I would never mm-hmm. hear about it from the, what do you think about us making this purchase? Or what do you, and so, and like I said, it was a totally both our faults. I'm not blaming him. But at the same time, I think that that constant Constant communication is so important because otherwise you're feeling like, like you're almost feeling like the kid and the adult is yelling at you, right? Like I have my dad when I was growing up was extremely frugal. So when Adam would talk to me about that stuff, I almost felt like it was like a dad daughter type thing again, and not so much a, a partnership and a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you to be careful of that.
1: No, completely. And I think too, that a budget, budgets get a bad rap and it's because well, it's going to take so much work and we got to figure out this stuff out and it's really hard. And I think that budgets can be this really beautiful thing that helps you uh, actually figure out what your most important goals are. And and it helps you once you see all those numbers right in front of your face, uh, like, okay, wow, why are we spending so much money there? That doesn't really matter to us. And you know what? It's preventing us from spending money on something that actually matters. A cool a cool trip, a cool experience for us to do together. A membership to this you know, local to the zoo or whatever that we would... Go with our kids all the time and we felt like we didn't have the money to do that we realized quickly once we saw the numbers laid out in front of our face that we can make changes um, and that we can reprioritize some things so I think budgets get this bad rap but it's something that is actually
2: a really freeing experience okay so anything else about budgeting Danielle or okay all right let's move on to another question what's the average credit score and what does that mean to me what do I need to know about credit scores all
1: right. So what you need to know about credit scores is that credit scores determine a whole lot of things. They determine the interest rate you're going to get on a loan. Uh, they determine whether you're going to be able to get a loan or not in the first place. So if you're looking to, to buy a car, whether it's used or new, you're looking to buy a house, obviously your credit score is going to have a major impact on the interest rate that you're paying. And because of that, that can mean uh, in the case of a car loan, thousands of dollars of difference over the life of the loan. In, in what you end up paying and in the case of a mortgage that can be tens of thousands of dollars uh, in, in what you end up paying but on top of that uh, the your credit score has an impact in a lot of other areas of life too there can be let's say if you're renting uh, it can be the difference between getting a place to rent or not uh, landlords often do a credit check and so it's really important to have your credit straightened, uh straightened up if you are applying to uh, to lease certain places. Um, it's also really important. uh, Let's say you're getting car insurance because if you have a car, you're going to have car insurance, right? And you are going to oftentimes be charged a higher rate for your car insurance uh, if you have a lower credit score. So it's, yeah, it's this thing that's becoming almost like a unique identifying number that gets used in so many different ways. And so it's really, really important for you to have a, a handle on your credit uh, and the most important factor in your credit is paying your bills on time. So it's crucial that if you are bad at that, if you forget uh, often um, that you that you set a recurring remi- reminder on your calendar or that you have your bills set up on auto pay. You don't want to neglect to pay your bills on time. Um, and then second, uh, one of the other biggest things that affects your credit score is what's called your credit utilization rate. And so let's say you have a credit card with a $10,000 balance. Um, but every month, you, you're carrying $6,000, $7,000 every month of debt that you never pay off. That is going to kill your credit score. Because, uh, But let's say you have you know, $500 or $1,000 of, of recurring credit card debt every month on that $10,000 balance. Your credit score is going to be really healthy. Um, and, and so it's this overall look at your utilization um, of, of, your, of your debts um, every month um and so it's really important to to take a look at that and to make sure that you're not abusing that utilization rate and that's going to really damage your score.
2: So meaning not using too much of your available credit. Exactly. Right? So if you have 10,000 and you're using 678, you're using too much of your available credit that that's a negative thing for your credit score. Exactly. Yeah, okay. that
1: your creditors want to know that uh, not only that you that you're able to get lots of varied amounts of credit. So they want to see Oh, cool. That Adam's gotten a home loan, a car loan. He's paid it off well. And he's got these credit cards. He's got he's got $40,000 in available credit, but he he only uses every month a couple thousand of that. So it just shows that you're a responsible user of credit. And, and that's one of the most important factors uh, in, in raising your credit score up. And there's a great website that you can check out that is completely free to sign up for. It's called Credit Karma. And Credit Karma will show you two of your credit scores every month. Ah, uh, there are other places where you can check out your your scores for free too. But Credit Karma has this awesome like scorecard feature, um, and so they'll kind of go through each area and they'll tell you, hey, you're getting an A in this, but you're getting a D in this section of how your credit score is factored. And they'll kind of give you some tips on how you can get better um, so that you can raise your score over time. So if you're interested in raising your credit score, um, because like I said, it's going to impact a lot of things in life, what you're going to pay for things and uh, what you're going to pay for insurance, what you're going to pay for uh, interest rates. So uh, Credit Karma is just a great resource for folks.
2: Okay. Uh, This might sound like a silly question, but that doesn't mean I should go open 20 credit cards so I have more available to me, even though I'm not utilizing the full balance of all of those 20 credit cards. But would that help my credit score? Or is that bad that I'm going to go just be overloaded in credit availability? Some people might think, okay, I only spent $1,000. i am going to go open $100,000 in credit availability. Even I wouldn't What? I do not think that. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, no way. Well, no, okay. no. That, that is I'm... actually, that that is a good question, I think, because, oh, thank you. <laughs> because here's the deal. <laughs> it is true that if you open more credit cards, over time, um, it, the, the more access to credit you have, the higher that limit is, the better it's going to reflect on your credit score. But there are other factors that go in your credit score, too. And one of the other factors that... Uh, that is that your credit score is based off, off of is length of credit history. And, and so if you open 20 new accounts, it's going to look like you've got all this really young credit. And what you want is credit that you've built up over a long time. That's why closing a credit card can be really bad for your credit. Um, if you've paid off a credit card and then you close it, that's not a good thing. You want to hold that credit line open and just not use it um, because that is going to reflect better because it looks like you've had this piece of credit for a long time and you've used it wisely if you open up 20 credit cards next week, well, it's going to look like you've got this uh, large amount of really young credit, and it's going to reflect poorly on your score because of that.
0: So how come you never let me open a Nordstrom card? <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> he said he's not a marriage therapist. Let's not get into that. <laughs> It sounds like
0: it'd be a great
2: idea. <laughs> if you do have a good credit score, are interest rates negotiable with either a mortgage lender or a credit card? Can you negotiate rates?
1: That's a good question. Yeah, you can in certain circumstances. If you are uh, currently have a mortgage with a lender um, and you're locked into, you've signed the closing papers, you're locked into a, you know, a 30-year mortgage, a 15-year mortgage, you're not going to be able to negotiate that rate. At that point in time, in all likelihood, <laughs> you're going to have to refinance with either that lender or another lender in order to potentially lower your rate. Um, but it is possible when you are shopping. Of course, we're in a competitive environment when you're shopping for a car interest rate or a home interest rate. Um, you're going to be able to to pit lenders against one another and then say, "Hey, well, I got a better deal over here. Um, can you can you match what this other?" Uh, what this other company is offering me. And, and, and that's, a, that's certainly a worthwhile endeavor. I'm always in favor uh, in a capitalist society of, of pitting uh, companies against one another to, to get the best deal.
2: A lot of people know when you go out to buy a car, you go to a few different dealerships and you compare the price of the thing, of the car, uh, and you negotiate the price of a product. But I don't think most people think to themselves if the price of the car is X amount of dollars and this is what it'll cost to finance you does anybody say, oh, well, can that be adjusted to the, the, the financing part of the car? Thank you for taking $1,000 off the car. Now, can you take a half a point off the interest rate of the, fi-? like, I don't know if most people do that.
1: Yeah, I think most people don't negotiate well in those circumstances. And I think in that circumstance in particular, if you're buying a new car, it's really, really important, just like we were talking about, to have a an awesome rate in hand from something like your local credit union. So you can say, Oh, you're willing to take $1,000 off the car. That's great. This is a good rate. I think I'd like to purchase this car. Well, my credit union's willing to write me a loan at 2.75%. Can you beat that? If you can't, you know what? I'm more than happy to take the loan from my credit union and uh, and, and see if they'll match it. See if they'll mm-hmm. do better than that. Um, and if they can't, if they won't, then you know what? You've got, you've got an awesome deal in your back pocket. The problem is when people are going to buy a car, oftentimes they haven't shopped for rates ahead of time and they take whatever the dealership is offering. And oftentimes it's going to be many many points higher than what you could have gotten right. on the open market.
2: Yeah, cuz we're so concerned about the price of the of the car and we don't think about the interest rate. And that's that's a big thing over time. Like you were no saying before doubt. about, yeah.
0: <laughs> you were talking to talk about how many credit cards we should have. What's the right amount to have? What should each person have? I mean, for us, I know we use American Express, but some places don't take American Express.
2: Well, we have an American Express and we have our Fidelity. A debit card. Fidelity. It's a debit card. Yeah. So we, I, I'm trying to lay off the credit card thing. I'm trying to back away from that and use the debit card as much as possible, uh, just because as we've been saying for the last only three months of the 16 years we're married, finally getting control of our finances, and we've had more credit cards, which I've stopped using many of them. We both have. And I'm trying to focus on the debit card because this is how much is in the account and this is what's available to spend. And, and, it's, and you, you feel the hurt because you see your balance drop when you use it. So that's yeah. where, where our focus is so far.
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, like what you guys are doing, going back to using a debit card and so that you can feel the pain to a certain extent, right? Uh, then I think that makes a lot of sense. I think if that works best for you, there's no reason to use credit cards in your life if you're not going to pay them off in full every month because there's nothing. Uh, worth worth buying? That's going to put you in fifteen, eighteen, twenty percent uh, interest rate every month on a credit card. Uh, and so, if it's not the, the question of how many credit cards you should have, would would be better answered with zero if you're not going to be able to use them effectively. If you are, however, going to be able to use credit cards well, you're going to be able to pay those balances off in full every month. I think it's a really good idea for people to have two or three cards um, that they that they use. At different places and so there are two I have a few different credit cards but there are two in particular that I use most of the time Um, I have one straight up 2% cashback rewards card and I think that's a really good there there are a couple of those out there I think it's that's a really worthwhile card for people to have just it's kind of the lazy man's or woman's just really easy card where you know you're getting something back for every purchase I don't really like the the cards where they have recurring categories because those are kind of hard to keep up with at least for me I, I I like simplicity and so, yeah, there are two main cards that I use most of the time. I think having two or three is great. It just makes it easier to remember you know, what you get rewards for uh, with each card and then kind of the perks and benefits associated with each. So some cards, if you travel overseas internationally, some cards, travel, uh, some cards charge you know, multiple percentage points of a fee when you use that credit card overseas. And there are other cards that charge a 0% fee when you use those cards overseas. So there are all these other little things to know. We did an episode back in the day about kind of the lesser known benefits of credit cards. There are all these other little things that you can get uh, by having a credit card. There's purchase protection on certain items. I've got one credit card that if I buy something with it and the price drops within it's either 60 or 90 days, um, that I get a refund on the difference. So there are all these other little things, these cool things that credit cards can do. But again, the only way that you should be taking advantage of those things, is if you're going to pay them off in full and not pay interest.
0: You're always seeing like you could get a Disney credit card. You know, you can get <sighs> obviously the miles I'm credit cards. So you can get whatever it is that you're what that draws you to a timeshare credit card. I don't know, whatever it is, worth it? Not worth it?
2: Like Danielle just said before. Why didn't you let me open up a Nordstrom credit card? Um, so. different.
0: No, I'm talking about like a visa that is, it goes towards Disney or it goes towards, that's well, what Well, it's,
2: it's about. kind of the same thing. So it's okay. a Disney credit card or a Nordstrom credit card or a Pottery Barn credit card. It's, come to my store or come to our vacation resort, open this credit card and you will get this benefit. And we'll give you 0% interest for 12 months or whatever the deal is. Are those... For me personally, I hate this stuff. I stay far away from it in every every time possible. But for everybody listening, what are your thoughts on those?
1: Yeah, I I don't really like store credit cards. I think um, they're not cards that can be used widely. They're usually right store specific, and if, there are a couple exceptions. Something like the the Target credit card. I, I was just
0: you... gonna say that.
1: <laughs> yeah, the Target credit card is a good one because you can get if you're if you're a loyal Target shopper. You can get five percent off, I believe, of every purchase that you make at Target, and then you can also use that credit card elsewhere as well. Um, so that's kind of an exception to the rule, but but usually um, those store credit cards come with higher interest rates. They're specific to that one uh, that one place, and, and they're going to offer you that one time benefit for signing up. But then they're not they're, they don't weigh into your credit mix the same as regular credit cards. And when it comes to other credit cards, let's say an airline specific card. I think uh, airline-specific airline specific cards are not a bad idea, um, but they also can lead you to being loyal to one specific airline at the expense of refusing to shop uh, for the lowest airfare. So I do have a Southwest credit card because I, can fly, I, I fly Southwest a good bit. And a sign-up bonus essentially allowed for us to get four free round-trip tickets for our whole family. So we're going to be able to go on one free trip as a family somewhere for signing up for it. Uh, Another thing, I even asked because it has an annual fee uh, uh, with with the credit card. I said, hey, can you waive the annual fee this year? And they were more than willing to do that. So I think you can ask for an annual fee to be waived. um, But typically, I prefer the more general cards just because for simplicity's sake, it's going to be easier for people uh, to follow. follow, and, And I think there's all these other ways. There are people that love credit credit card rewards, that love sign up bonuses, that love travel rewards, and I think for a good section, a very small section of the population, that can be a really good thing to do, um, and they, they can maximize those well. But I think for most people, that's that's probably for a different podcast.
2: <laughs> podcast yeah, exactly. Episode, right. Yeah, completely. We said before that we use the American Express, and literally the only reason that we do is because it's not tied to one airline or one merchant or one anything, you accumulate points. And if you want to travel, you can choose from any airline. You So you can choose whatever whoever has the best deal. You go on American Express website. You're not tied to one airline. You can travel with whatever you want. You purchase the ticket and then Amex deducts your purchase and then takes it away from their points. So that's one reason that we love American Express is because you're not tied to one airline. You're not tied to one hotel or whatever place you're using it for.
1: Yeah. If you're looking for a travel rewards card, typically those are going to be the best ones, right? The ones that allow you to redeem those those points at a variety of locations as opposed to a one brand specific one.
2: Okay. We just talked about a lot and I want to kind of wrap this up with one question here that I have that is going to be so broad and so general that I hope you can answer it well, which kind of wraps everything up. And this was a really great question, and I I just wanted to have this one thrown in at the end. And somebody said, "It all just seems too overwhelming. What do I do just to get started?" Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think
1: sometimes we think that we need to eat the whole thing at one time. We need to tackle it. We need to spend a whole weekend dedicated to to getting our personal finances in order. Right. And we need to save the world in one fell swoop. Mm-hmm. And that's just not possible. If it's something that we, we haven't even looked at our finances in years and years and years, maybe a decade, that's just, that's not going to happen. And so it's going to take uh, these small bite-sized pieces. And if the first thing is to check your credit score on a website like Credit Karma, just figure something out, take one step. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the next thing is to track your expenses, uh, then just, just logging into your bank account. To know where your money went just reading over your credit card bill when it comes in the mail versus throwing it in the trash that is that's one small step uh, that you can take in order to start getting uh, going in the right direction if there's one habit that you have that you know you waste money on uh, every day every week whatever it is that you can reform in some way form or fashion uh, then it's it's taking those those small steps uh, because you're not going to be able to do it overnight. And in all likelihood, you're not even going to be able to take giant size steps. And so yeah, taking little tiny steps whenever you can uh, and just being a little a little more intentional, making it a priority. I think uh, asking the question is great, um, but if we continue to throw our hands up in exasperation and don't, uh, and don't force ourselves to begin to take those tiny steps that we can take, um, then then we're going to be left in the same situation six months, a year, two years from now. So you have to at least begin. Um, and so, yeah, I'd encourage that poster in that way.
2: That's perfect. I, honestly, great answer. <laughs> I, I knew you'd have something to give into that and it was done perfectly. Thank you so much. This was great. I, I love that you came back and we were able to get to our listener questions finally or at least no, most of them time. at least most of them and it was better than just a rapid fire of questions i think we we, we talked through a lot of these really well and, so it, and
0: whatever we didn't i know they can find on your podcast on how to money so if they haven't already they should definitely go check that out yeah you guys are great i mean you guys really feel like when i listen to your podcast like i can actually understand which is pretty awesome because i this is like so far into me so i appreciate that
2: yeah i hope we get to meet matt soon yeah, I know. I
1: need to send Matt on next time. That's for sure. Yeah. But, uh, but I ha- you know what? I had so much fun last time. I was like, sorry, Matt. You're going to have to wait. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but,
0: well, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. And I hope everyone will check out the
2: podcast. Anything awesome. else, anywhere else that you want people to find you, follow you?
1: I think the, just the one other thing I would say is that we do have a Facebook group. And if you search How to Money when you go to Facebook in the, in the search bar up top, you can find our group. And that is just a great place to be able to ask questions. Um, we're going to start taking listener questions on the show soon, which I'm excited about. But if you have something pressing and, and you want kind of that hive mind, some advice, um, it's just such a great place to turn. There's so many helpful folks in there. We've got like 2,000 folks and and they're into it and they care and they know, a lot of them know something. They, they, someone knows something that you don't know. And so I love kind of tapping that. So if you need another place to turn, check out check out our Facebook group.
2: Awesome.
0: Great. That's a great resource.
2: All right, man. Thanks so much for coming back Thank on. You. I hope we get to have you again sometime soon. Um, Yeah, let's do it. I love it. Absolutely. All right, cool. All right, have a great night. Talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having me. All right, thanks.